Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online. On DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Delighted to welcome my next guest to the show now. Uh, start this hour off, uh, Environment Secretary George Eustace. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, look, let's start with actually your area of responsibility. And this is this uh, uh, seven-year plan to transform our, our local environment, our farming industry, with a big change to those post-EU cap payments, which used to be basically the bigger the uh, farm you've got, the more subsidies you get from the EU paid for by British taxpayers. You're going to be changing that. What's going to be the big change? Well, we've had under our EU membership, the Common Agricultural Policy, which uh, never had a great reputation. It was hopelessly bureaucratic with huge numbers of rules that farmers struggled to comply with, vast amounts of paperwork. But most importantly, it rewarded farmers based on how much land they owned or rented. And it meant that the largest and wealthiest landowners got the biggest payments, which really makes no sense at all. So what we are replacing that with, and we recognise the dependency that some farmers have on the subsidy payments, so we'll do this over seven years, but we're going to replace it with uh, new payments to support farmers and reward them for making space for nature, for farming uh, more sustainably to improve, for instance, water quality and to help soil health and prevent soil erosion, and also for enhancing animal welfare as well and adopting practices of livestock husbandry that are good for animal welfare. So much more around directing the money to deliver results and outcomes rather than arbitrarily doling it out based on how much land a farmer has. Okay, I think a lot of people will be uh, very happy about that. Though, of course, there will be losers as well as winners, as we always are in these cases. Um, I know there are an awful lot of people listening right now that want me to focus on uh, the restrictions that are affecting far many more millions of us right now. Um, we've had some offers from the Prime Minister ahead of this vote in the Commons on Tuesday about uh, uh, the tier restrictions as we leave uh, the, the second lockdown. Um, and there is expected to be a revolt of up to possibly 100 Tory MPs either voting against or abstaining, meaning the, the Tory party will have to rely on Labour votes to get it through. Um, this promise of a sunset clause on February the 3rd, just nine weeks, we're told. Um, there's a promise of this cost-benefit analysis later today. Do you think that's going to be enough to win enough rebels over? Well, I hope so. And I, I think uh, the reality here is that you know, there's clearly a lot of frustration with the emergency measures that we've had to take to deal with this pandemic. They are extraordinary measures. We completely understand that. We haven't taken them lightly. We don't want them to stay a moment longer than is necessary. 
but we do judge you know the the lockdowns have been necessary to get the virus back under control and some ongoing restrictions through this tiered approach to be necessary uh, you know for the for the rest of the winter but the prime minister's clearly he wants to involve parliament in this process so there will be a review at the end of january where parliament uh, can express a view on what happens uh, after february when they expire they can express a view things regularly they could express a view. Is that all they get to do? Express a view? <clears throat> well, uh, Parliament expresses a view on a, a particular type of motion, then obviously it can stop things happening. That's uh, okay. always been uh, the case. You, you said that we, we've had to take these measures, but um, you said the knockdown was necessary. Um, the data from the, the Tim Spector's uh, King's College Zoe app and the ONS data has backed this up and GP surveillance uh, records have backed up the fact that we passed the peak of infections before lockdown, um, that we know infections were falling in nearly all regions before the lockdown. Hospital admissions peaked on November the 5th. Um, why did we have to have a lockdown? Well, because the prevalence was quite high in some areas. It was quite high. Where, well, some areas. So, so, so the tiered restrictions would have been enough then? Well, the, we, what we discovered with the tiered restrictions is that <clears throat> tier one generally wasn't enough to keep the virus in check. So it didn't get that R value, as they call it, below uh, one. We still had significant growth in the virus. Uh, tier three was managing to, to hold it into check. But we faced a situation where there was um, quite a, a growth, a rapid acceleration in the incidence of the virus in many parts of the country, including areas like uh, my part of the uh, world in Cornwall, where the incidence was low. And we judged that it was necessary to, to take that uh, overall approach and have a lot. So was there significant growth or were infections falling? I mean, it's, it's, the official data shows that infections were falling. Well, my understanding is that at the point uh, when we took this decision to go into uh, the lockdown, we were still seeing, for instance, in the southwest, uh, a doubling of the infection rate, albeit from a low base, but a doubling of the infection rate roughly every 10 to 14 days. So uh, it was still accelerating in those parts of the country that weren't in uh, the tier three lockdown. Uh, and that is why we judged it necessary to take the measures we did. Okay. And of course, there is some data out today that shows a significant reduction in incidents since the lockdown of about 30%. So it seems to have delivered what we wanted it to. Well, the REACT study has shown 30% before, but given that infections were falling in nearly all regions before then, uh, it, it, including in places like Liverpool that were hotspots, um, I don't think we can necessarily say it was the lockdown that delivered that, can we? Well, I mean, if they were going uh, up until the moment of the lockdown and then the lockdown brought them down, then you could perhaps make some causality as opposed to the, the infections had peaked already. They were going down anyway. And then you had a lockdown. And now you're claiming that the lockdown resulted in the infections going down. I mean, correlation isn't causation. You know that. Well, I do know that. But I, my understanding is that the, uh, the data for uh, this latest survey uh, what has been done over the last couple of weeks. So mm -hmm. it has been taking place during lockdown. And what we were finding uh, with the tiered approach uh, before is that you know, people were just moving from tier one to tier two and tier three uh, and so on. And it no, they weren't moving. The government moved them. It, it, it doesn't, yes. they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a political decision to move them. It was. And we were having to take those difficult decisions uh, to move people because, you know, the approach was sadly, and we, we tried it very, very hard. Matt Hancock was a huge advocate of the uh, regional approach, the tiered approach. We stuck with that as long as we could. But we decided you, we you just stuck with it. You, you, stuck with it for, you stuck with it for two or three weeks. 
Well, we'd actually been running a regional approach since the summer. There were, of course, a number of... Well, the tiers, no, the tiers were in place for two or three weeks. Uh, yes, but... So that's not as long as you could. Given that you can't, you don't really see an effect in infections for two weeks, we're told, and you don't see an effect in hospital admissions and deaths for, for four for two, two, three weeks and then four weeks. Why is that as long as you could? Well, because the uh, evidence that we had at the time was that we were seeing the virus okay. really starting to accelerate again right across the country in areas where you had uh, high prevalence as well as low prevalence. And that's why we judge that a okay. lockdown break um, the spread of the virus is necessary. What's going to happen, do we think, on February the 3rd then? Because uh, last March we were told three weeks to flatten the curve. Then we were told it'd be back to normal by Christmas. Then we were told repeatedly no second lockdown. Then we were told freedom by spring. Now there's talk of summer. Dominic Robb, your colleague, the Foreign Secretary, yesterday was talking about a possible third wave. At what point does this stop? At what point do we actually just say this is an endemic virus? We're never going to have zero COVID deaths and that we are going to have to allow people who are not vulnerable or very elderly to get back to their normal lives, save the economy and stop causing more deaths from lockdowns in the long term than we are saving from COVID. At what point is enough enough? Well, I think really uh, it's important for us to show a way through this. And the solution ultimately is a vaccine. Now, we've got um, a number of very uh, encouraging uh, vaccines that are ready probably to put deployment quite uh, quite soon. Uh, one potentially before Christmas, uh, but others as well that we uh, believe can be deployed from the new year. And we will be getting those vaccines out. From the new year? I mean, a few weeks ago, it was all going to be deployed by Christmas. Uh, we never said that. We always said there was a, a possibility that the Pfizer one could start to be deployed. Uh, by Christmas. So you did uh, say that. It's always, it's always been the case, though, that, um, you know, the new year is when you would start to roll these out okay. and roll it out as quickly as you can to those vulnerable groups. I think yes. you then get to the point in uh, spring and early summer where, A, you've got weather changing and, um, excuse me, uh, the weather changes and you're able to uh, get uh, improved weather conditions that start to burn the virus off. But B, the impact of that vaccine starts to take effect. OK, uh, but again, there's big concern about how long this will take because we've been told that we could get everybody vaccinated by Easter and then we're told that we could possibly get the vulnerable vaccinated January, February. And then it's the, vul- the vulnerable. The, a lot, Boris Johnson last week was saying about the majority of the vulnerable who want the vaccine by Easter. I mean, we are talking about very, very movable dates. Do we actually have any fixed dates? Once the vaccine is available, how quickly we can roll this out? Well, we will be rolling out as quickly as possible. Well, that does, that's not problems. an answer. Well, I, I, we don't have that data yet, but I know that we don't have that there. data yet. Sorry, we, we've spent the last year basically like, you know, planning for well, six months, or whatever, knowing there's going to be a vaccine, hopefully. Surely the government has prepared how they will roll this vaccine out. Well, they, they are preparing for that, of course. No, they should and have prepared already. For that some time. Um, so, so they don't know, but they still don't know. So we might have a vaccine approved within a matter of days, but they don't know how they're going to roll it out and how long it will take to roll out. Really? Well, they, the Department for Health and uh, Department for Business have been working together on this vaccine and its deployment. Uh, they just have haven't told you? Uh, they, well, they have been working on this and working operationally on how to get it out. For instance, it's been discussion about some of the challenges of getting sufficient uh, 
refrigeration capacity because you need to uh, hold some of these vaccines at very low temperatures uh, and a lot of work on the logistics of getting that out uh, and maintaining the temperatures required okay. has, uh, has been done. All right, just final question. Um, can you explain to me, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not an expert in this field at all, but can you explain to me how having a, a drink in a pub without a substantial meal puts me at massive, massive risk of catching the virus or spreading to other people? But if I've got fish and chips in front of me, then it doesn't. And why going to a shop to buy clothes on Wednesday will probably kill me or kill other people. But going to the shops on Thursday, if they're open 24 7 is completely safe. Can you explain the epidemiology behind that? Because I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not an expert. And I think a lot of my listeners aren't. Can you help explain why that is the case? Yes, well, the measures we're taking are all about trying to break the cycle of infection. And that doesn't mean that every rule that we introduce and every requirement uh, we put on people is perfectly consistent or, uh, or might even be considered perfectly fair. Indeed, they won't be. But what we're trying to do overall is to break the number of infections that take place. That means dampening the number of interactions that happen. And in the case of restaurants versus uh, pubs, you know, the evidence is that when people are sat at a table and eating a meal, they're more likely to stay for uh, uh, you know, a period of time, not move around uh, as much and then depart. Pub, if you've finish. got table service in a pub, you're not allowed to move. I, mean, I don't know which pubs you've been into where you've been allowed to walk up to the bar. Can I, am I just right that you, as a cabinet minister, have just said to me that, that you confirmed that, yes, the rules are not consistent and not fair? Uh, the, the rules are intended to basically reduce the... Uh, but they're not consistent and not fair. I, there, there are, look, these are uh, draconian emergency measures. And so they're never, there's always going to be things you can point to and say, well, that's not entirely consistent. Uh, what we're trying to do with these measures uh, is to reduce the weight of infection, to lower the rate of spread. That's been the case. Oh, no, and I'm, I know I'm asking you how that does that. How does me having to order a substantial meal if I'm in tier two to go to a pub, how does that how does that lower my chance of spreading catching the virus or spreading it? And how do and how is it okay for me to go to a shop on Thursday or Wednesday, but not on Tuesday? I mean, how how on earth can those measures be considered to be sensible? I mean, if it's too dangerous for me to go to a shop today, why is it okay for me to go to a shop on Wednesday? Well, because we're we're trying to strike a balance. So throughout all of this, you've been able to go to the supermarket and do your food shopping because obviously we need people to be able to buy food. Um, We've taken the measures we have to dampen the spread of the virus and it's succeeded in doing that. But we now want to be able to loosen those restrictions so that people can start to shop again. And And somehow we're not all going to die as a result of shops reopening, selling clothes, for instance. No, but as I said, on all of these things, uh, these are emergency measures that we're taking to try to dampen uh, the virus. Um, And so we're changing the restrictions because we will have got the virus back down to an acceptable level and switching back to a a tiered approach. In the case of uh, pubs, uh, the evidence has been that some of the challenges that we had with pubs were where you had large groups of people uh, congregating and actually not maintaining social distance because they were just drinking. They were more likely to maintain social distancing, sat down uh, and having a meal. Um, It's simply that. It means that collectively across the whole of society. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Well, let's ask uh, one of the MPs, we understand who is uh, uh, wobbling and dithering over whether or not to vote for those restrictions, Tobias Elwood, he's chair of the Defence Select Committee in the Commons, also Tory MP for Bournemouth East, which is in Tier 2. Good morning to you, Tobias. Good morning. I don't think I'm wobbling and dithering. Oh, oh, all right. Well, you're, you're undecided, aren't you? It's not undecided. There is a conversation that's taking place. I and many other MPs up and down the country, as you've mentioned, are very concerned about the tier system that's been introduced. The Prime Minister is right. We mustn't want to lose the hard-fought gains that's been created by the national lockdown. But scrutiny of government is very, very important, particularly during an emergency. There is no playbook here to pluck off the shelf and say, this is what we do. Oh, well, no, there is. No, there is. The World Health Organization has published this for many years. And what it does say specifically is don't do lockdowns. Uh, Well, that (laughs) might be the case. But even the World Health Organization has never been able to predict a pandemic that moves across the world at this pace because even our own uh, judgments were made in the past, is to uh, follow what the, uh, a normal flu does, a normal COVID-based flu does, not this pandemic. This has taken everybody by surprise. But that uh, be as it may, what we have is over 80 boroughs across the country, about 16 million people that feel that they are probably in the wrong tier. And when it costs you almost a billion dollars a day for this tiering system, it's absolutely right that we check to make sure that every area is in the correct okay. um, so category. So your concern is people being in, in regions and areas being in the wrong tier as opposed to an ideological, philosophical objection to having further restrictions? I'm, I'm, I think both are important. But in the case of Dorset, we went into the national, into this lockdown with low numbers. We come out of it with even lower numbers. The last couple of weeks of data uh, suggest that they, we've dropped even by a third. So we are querying, why did we end up not like the Isle of Wight? And these are the sort of questions that quite rightly any, any MP would want to put forward to the Prime Minister. So what we're seeing now today is that dialogue starting. We've got another 24 hours to get this right. 
Dorset MPs will try and meet the Prime Minister today uh, to make our case. Have you been given any evidence from ministers or from Downing Street at all about why your area of Dorset is in Tier 1? As you say, the Isle of Wight is one of the few areas, a tiny percentage of the country that is in Tier 1. Because the the fact that we haven't seen yet this cost-benefit analysis that that many MPs and myself and others have been demanding, um, and again, we know is routinely done in government for any measure, let alone a measure that's costing the economy billions and billions of pounds and may end up costing more lives than it saves. I mean, if you're not doing cost-benefit impact assessment analysis, then when are you doing it? But they made the decisions last week. We know, based on an awful lot of data that was already uh, four or five, six days out of date, um, but they're not publishing it, we're told, this analysis until today, which suggests to me they didn't actually do cost-benefit analysis or any impact assessment before they made the decision, uh, but they, they've managed to, they're cobbling it together over the weekend and they're publishing it today. Is, is that your fear that actually they are not looking at this in a scientific way and this is a bit more back of the envelope oh oh, well put them in tier two put them in tier three vague decisions as opposed to based on clear data and clear analysis of what it will cost and what it will benefit well the fact that there are so many areas that are you know enclaves if you like that have um low incidence of covid that are wrapped into larger areas then yes you make a very very strong point let's see that the detail let's see the analysis let's see the evidence Uh, that justifies their decision making and that will then help us better understand. Let's not forget that you need to take the people with you. There needs to be that consent that supports the rules. Otherwise, the rules will go out the window. People will do uh, their own thing. And you touch on data. That's such an important point. I understand that the decision was made on the 25th of November using data that was over a week old from an event that's going to start a week later. Um, That clearly clearly isn't isn't right. We should be using up-to-date data. And another criteria that's worked against us is the fact that Bournemouth Hospital and many hospitals are under pressure. We understand that. But then what happened to the Nightingale program? We built seven incredible Nightingale hospitals by our fantastic armed forces, and they are lying dormant. It's not right that you can then put that as a point to any uh, authority to say you're busy in your area with COVID, your beds are full, when actually we've got empty Nightingales. That doesn't make sense at all. And there are uh, 2,000 military personnel medically trained that could run these nightingales should we have the MACA process concluded that would make them work. Um, and we know two of the seven Nightingale hospitals uh, have actually already been closed. So it's a bit strange. We've got Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, talking about all the fear of a third wave. Lots of people expect that we will be back in lockdown. You and I know perfectly well uh, that, that we are going to be seeing infections. When infections have been going down. They went down before we went into lockdown uh, quite consistently. Um, but we will be seeing more people will be dying in January and February because that happens Every single year, that's when people die of respiratory diseases. Um, That we are going to be heading back to another lockdown. Um, The big concern for a lot of people who, who, you know, want to do the right thing, they wear their masks, they are concerned, they're not saying, no, not let let it rip people, not it's a hoax people, but perfectly normal people going about their business, but worrying that the lockdown measures cost more lives and cost the economy more than the lives they save. That there is a fear that we are going to be doing this forever and ever and ever, unless or until um, either the people... Uh, who would be risking fines and imprisonment, losing their jobs, stand up for this. Or MPs like yourself say, enough, this isn't working. 
we have to accept that we cannot have a zero COVID strategy. It's never going to work. It's an endemic virus. And we accept that, actually, you know what? We are not going to have these vaccines rolled out within a matter of weeks and have everyone going back to normal. And we are simply going to have to accept that some people who have to be who are vulnerable or elderly have to protect themselves. But we need the country to get back to work and get back to normal life. Do you think that there's going to reach a tipping point at some point, please God soon, where MPs say enough is enough. Well, I do agree with you. The um, uh, You'll be familiar with the Bournemouth International Centre. We've had many party conferences there. They are preparing to be uh, to, to take over as a mass regional vaccine distribution uh, location next week. This is just around the corner. When you, Another criteria that is working against us is the numbers over 60s, is the, is the infection rate in over 60s. And I absolutely agree with you with the vaccinations literally just about to roll off in a matter of days or weeks, which will, and it'll be over the 60s that will benefit straight away. Why not then bring in back that shielding that we started off? If you remember, everybody was very, very keen to shield. My mother still shields, actually, because she just thinks it's a sensible thing to do. We're so close. Let's have that plan that gets us through this difficult winter. Let's shield the, the, over, uh, the over 60s and the vulnerable, knowing that it'll only be a matter of weeks before they get their injections. But it then means the economy can start to open up in key areas because many of the businesses, hospitality in particular, are literally on their, on their, on their knees. And if they don't open up soon, I'm afraid much as there's been huge economic intervention and support from the Chancellor, some of them will close. And once they close, they're gone for good. Do you think the Prime Minister's listening? Well, that's what we're at the moment. That's what politics is all about. This is why, you know, it's important. Everybody talks about this as a rebellion. It's a conversation. It's raising the concerns. It's Parliament doing its oversight duty. And that's exactly what should happen. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. I mean, this, the idea of rollout of mass testing in schools, I and mean, I said this isn't something that, that I've heard much about. Is this on the cards for all schools? Well, it started in Liverpool. I mean, back ages ago, Operation Moonshot was implied it was going to be for the whole population. There was no mention of whether it would be for adults, children, everybody. And then the price was leaked at the eye-watering £100 billion, and it seemed to have got put... That's 70% of the NHS budget. And at that point, it seemed to have got put on hold. But then it started in Liverpool and they started mass screening in Liverpool on Friday, the 6th of the 7th of November. And they rolled it out to secondary schools on the following Monday, literally one weekend apart. So parents were getting a letter home. And this is where the ethics really worried me. The parents were getting a letter home on the Friday evening saying that this was starting on the school on Monday. The first letter that a parent sent to us came from a school and I mean, they sent us a copy of the letter saying that there wouldn't even be time to get consent for this procedure, which would have been the normal thing to do because of the emergency pandemic. And so they were asking if you didn't want your child to have it, please, would you get in touch in writing by Monday morning? In other words, it was an opt out rather yeah. than an opt in. Um, it was also stated to be a pilot study. That implies it's a research project of some sort. And in fact, the general who appeared on on the a press conference the you know government press conference that day very specifically said we're here to test help research whether this test works the test they're using says in the leaflet that it is to be used on patients in the first five days of symptoms and the result is to be interpreted in the light of the clinical picture 
So this has not been designed as a mass testing tool. Well, indeed, as in all the testing, matter. all of the, I mean, the rapid screening lateral flow test yeah. and the PCR test, neither of them, the diagnostics, I mean, the actual documentation from the manufacturer yeah. states these are not to be uses, used on people without symptoms yeah. in a mass testing program. That they, that's not yeah. what they were designed for, which yeah. is why they are so yeah. inaccurate. But your concern there really is, is the ethics of this. It's just the schools, yeah. the government just telling schools, test a load of children and, and the, the basic ethics yeah. of this being completely ignored and bypassed. Yes, I mean, there's been no, we've asked to see whether they've had ethical approval for this. If it's a research project, you have to go through ethics approval. It's, it's important for adults, but it's even more important for children. It's completely against the human, you know, rights of the child, uh, Nuremberg. I mean, all sorts of things have, have said. Research okay. on children what a, what, is really, really restricted. What about someone listening to this saying, oh, goodness sake, Ros, you know, you're, you're being a bit of a, a conspiracy theorist here. There's, there's no risk to the children from the test. Uh, what's what's okay. the problem? What would you say to that? There, there are two problems. I mean, the main problem is that there is no benefit. They're being told quite, and this is very misleading, and it's not the school's fault. This will be what they've been told by whoever, PHE, I don't know. But they're told that this is for the health benefit of your child. Well, the only benefit to the child, as far as I can see, is that they may get sent home from school for two weeks if they don't want to go to school. But actually, most children do want to go to school. And if you assume, let's say, a false positive rate of 5%, that's quite generous because the requirements on the government website for manufacturers are that it has to be 95% specific with a range of 90 to 100. So let's say you could have 10 but for purposes of discussion, 5%. You test a school of 1,000 children, a big secondary school, that is 50 false positive tests. You then send home not only those 50 children, but 50 classmates on average per child is what's going home at the moment. At the moment, we know we've got 18,000 children who've tested positive last week, but we've got almost a million children who are out of school because they are a contact. So all that this mass testing of asymptomatics is going to do is pick up more false positives. And if they're all asymptomatic, they're not going to get many true positives in there. They might if they were only testing people who are really ill. Uh, can I say that the false positive issue, it's amazing how much people just say, oh, this is all, you know, this idea, the people who are claiming this is a case-demic and that these, these with such low rates of infection, you can pick up a lot more false positives. But when we have a higher rate of infection, when you're testing a lot of people who actually do have the virus or have symptoms of the virus, you're not going to get very many false, false positives. But as you say, when you are testing just a whole range of youngsters who have no symptoms whatsoever then the false positive rate will be high. And this is not conjecture. This is, I mean, this is what the manufacturing, yeah. manufacturers state in their own documentation. We, we know that the, the test rates, even as published by the manufacturer of these tests, point out that, you know, done by lab, you know, trained, specially trained scientists in lab conditions, you get this, uh, this rate of yeah. accuracy. D done by, you know, lay people uh, in, 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 among people without symptoms, you get this rate of accuracy. I believe the accuracy goes to somewhere close to only 50% in those circumstances. I should hate to speculate, but you may be right. But, you know, even, even if let's be generous and say that it's still going to be 90% accurate, it still doesn't mean that if you've got a very low incidence of the disease, then the, I mean, we know Liverpool only had half a percent, but, you know, we've, we're probably going to have more false positives than true positives, whatever we do okay. in um, this situation. Uh... And even if we had no true positives in the school, we would still get maybe 20, 30, 50, maybe 100, depending on the percentage failure rate 
of false cases. Okay. Interestingly, there's been a court in Portugal, some um, four people who've t gone to court to say they've been falsely quarantined. And the judge concluded that since nobody could tell him what the false positive rate was, yep. he said, I cannot say you've been correctly quarantined. You or your contacts have all been quarantined for a test. And I don't know. Well, indeed. And the, the British government actually snuck out in a recent uh, parliamentary answer. It was somewhere between 0.8% and 4%. I mean, we were, when we've been making calculations, we've gone on 0.8%, but it could be even worse. So who knows? Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.